Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 14. We're going to be joining you every week to talk IT career, news, and opinions based on our points of view. I'm your host, John White, at vjourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at networknerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. I want to make sure everyone knows we're both VMware solution engineers looking to bring you the career advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. Hopefully the discussions we have will be relevant across disciplines and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Great, Nick. Uh, how was that opening for you? It was good. You know, I'm really excited about part two, John. I can't handle these cliffhanger episodes to be continued, so I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens next. Aren't you excited? I'm very excited. As you alluded to, our topic this week is uh, part two of the Tom Delicati interview. Uh, in episode 13, we covered Tom's IT ops career and just as a teaser, he had a really interesting job search tactic that you and I are pretty excited to hear about it. So if our listeners haven't listened to episode 13, they should go back and uh, check that out. This episode, we transition more firmly into Tom's journey from IT ops to starting his own consulting business. So, uh, hey, Nick, before we get into this, had you heard these uh, stories of the early days of Lead? You know, as Tom struck it out on his own, we did keep in touch some, but a lot of this is behind the scenes stuff for me that I, I hadn't heard. You know, I'll just make some observations. Tom mentioned in episode 13 that trust was a big part of his management style when working for his former employer. And it was interesting to me to to see the difficulties he had with, with giving up control when once he owned the business with having things done a certain way. And, you know, maybe that has to be the difference between being an owner and being a manager, but that was pretty interesting to me. And something else I, I want to point out, you know, Tom's the kind of guy who I feel like could figure just about any problem out. And he was relentless at doing that. When I worked with him at my previous employer, he had no issues trying to pivot to, to solve a problem if he needed to take it in a different direction. And I really feel like he's applying that same strategy to his business. You know, he talked about, he wanted it, he wanted his business to be more than just a consulting business to, to something more than that. And that, and he was willing to, to measure against the vision he had and, and make changes to, to try and write the ship and get things. Hold on, hold on, hold on, Nick. Let's, I'm going to reel you in, man. You're, you're giving away the gold. I got excited. Gold. Yeah, I can tell you're excited. Uh, let's, uh, let's listen to the interview and we'll, we'll let, uh, Tom tell the story. Okay. All right, so part two of our interview with Tom Delicati. All right, Tom, that's really interesting. I, I want to kind of dig into this next chapter in your career where you actually decided to strike out on your own and start your own business. So, you know, obviously that doesn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't happen all at once. Can you maybe describe the the ramp up to that when the idea first you know, kind of took hold in your mind and, and, uh, how that evolved and, and how you got ready for it. Yeah. There's a, uh, a book published by Michael Gerber, I believe his name is came out in the mid eighties called the E-Myth. He would describe what you just said as the entrepreneurial seizure. 
I was attacked by an entrepreneurial seizure at some point. Um, but if we go back to, I won't say the beginning, but you know, the, where the idea first took hold was about two years ago. It was end of summer 2016, where I just kind of had that, that realization, that spark, that this is something that I could think about doing. And the lead up, the build up to that was very organic and it wasn't curated and orchestrated by me. Um, it was just something that I, I came to accept as this is a real possibility. And what I mean by that is, you know, I mentioned at my time at my previous employer where I was very involved in the user community, I started getting uh, more and more knowledge and involvement to where I started wanting to give back to it as well and contribute with some presentations and some sessions that I could hold to, to help other people. And that was really fueling the fire was I got such a high off of helping other people. And it was exactly what I was doing in, in the business I was at and the role I was in but there was a lot of seasonality that I was experiencing. Uh, we would find this project and latch onto it. I remember it was probably five or six years ago where we saw shipping and receiving as a huge opportunity in our business to leverage technology and really apply things uh, with our internal skill set. You know, not going out and spending a ton of money, um, and and really investing a, a little more time and energy in that process in the business and, and see some returns on it. And long story short is I essentially spent six months out there as partial shipping and receiving manager. I was making pack slips. I was trying to find better ways to do things. How do we stage loading trucks? I remember that. And uh, it was a a little bit of a realization to me that I don't have to sit behind my desk in, in the IT role to have an impact on this business. I can, and then they're comfortable with me sticking my nose where it wasn't, where it didn't belong. I'll say that again, sticking my nose where it didn't belong necessarily uh, in a traditional sense and letting me get involved, letting me get my hands dirty. If I saw an area that I thought needed some attention, they had trust that I was there for a reason. And if their director of IT was out on a flatbed truck loading pallets and they drove by, they didn't really care as much because they knew it was for ultimately the betterment of the organization. It was kind of interesting, John, because watching this from, you know, the cube next door, you, you would see operations folks, Hey, is Tom around? Oh no, I haven't seen him. He must be out, you know, working on something. But as he, completed more and more projects for the operations team and they saw these come to fruition like in shipping and receiving or another department, it just compounded from what I saw. More and more departments wanted some of that goodness. They wanted him as an advisor to help, you know, with, with different things. Wouldn't you say that Tom, as your, as the number of projects you completed and helped with showed more and more value to the business that you just kept getting hit with more and more stuff to make better and better? Absolutely. And the more that I, and I wouldn't even say me you know, personally, but it was just the more that we accomplished, it was very much a team effort, whether it was me doing some of the code or development behind making it a technical piece of it hum, 
that's secondary, but it was everybody involved in every one of those departments that I tried to touch to kind of rally behind this new kind of radical idea of what if we tried it this way? Um, and just the flexibility of the business, knowing that we weren't going to crater the organization by changing things. Um, it was, it was very beneficial, but I, I would say even on top of that, Nick, the more items we accomplished, the more things that got across the goal line, the more impact we had on the business, the more changes uh, for the good that were happening, the more I wanted to share this with other people, the more I wanted to um, find this as, you know, is this a topic that I can present on at the next user group meeting? Is this something that other users could benefit from? And so I really took that feeling and tried as hard as I could to push that agenda with other users and, and be more in front of other people. And uh, some of the clients that I work with now saw me do a presentation four years ago when I was still working for, the, for my former employer at a user group meeting. And they tell me now, like, man, we saw you present in Houston in 2014. And it was like, man, that guy knows his stuff. If I could ever work with him, I want to do that. And that's such a, a cool thing to hear now. But in the moment in 2014, I just felt like I was giving back. I felt like this group and this organization and this software and these people have done so much for me to help me in my career. And just from a learning standpoint, whether it was promotions or you know bonuses or, or raises, that didn't matter. It was these people have helped kind of cultivate me and my knowledge base to where I was going and, and where I wanted to be, I needed to give some of that back to other people who uh, may not be there yet. And so for eight years straight, I presented at the national conference for Epicor and, and want to keep doing it um, because it is kind of that giving back. And over the course of those years, I was doing that. I would get asked by other people, hey, do you ever do anything on the side? Is there any way you could come visit with us? And, uh, you know, or, or I really love what you're doing here. Is it possible to kind of get that to work in our environment? And a lot of times I, I would try as best as I could, but uh, I, I loved where I was at. I loved the people that I worked with. I loved the, the goals of the organization and the culture in the organization. And so I really had no desire to do anything different. Uh, or to work for anybody else. Because even while I was getting asked by other users, I was also getting pinged by other consulting firms who were attending those conferences who were saying, man, we could really use you on our team. Uh, is there any way you'd consider taking on a role within our firm? Um, and, you know, I, I interviewed a few times. I, I got as far as uh, a few offers were on the table. But ultimately it came back to, I don't want to work for anyone else besides who I was working for at that time. I love the business. I love the culture. I wanted to just stay there. I didn't want to have a different boss, different colleagues go through that proving yourself bit all over again. Um, and I don't want to mistake that for complacency because I don't think that was the case at all. Um, I still very much had drive and passion to do more, um, but like I said, there was some seasonality involved. I started to get a little feeling of, I don't want to call it boredom, but I knew there wasn't 
another step for me to take. I knew there wasn't this next gear in the business or this next position that I could you know, strive to achieve or, or other impact that I could be having. I'd have to wait for it to come to me a little bit. And so having that realization, um, and, and I would refer to that more as that entrepreneurial seizure that I mentioned earlier, um, having that realization that there really was no next step, no logical next place for me to go, um, and having all of these side conversations with people who wanted to do work with me but didn't feel like they could because I was where I was at, um, I kind of approached the idea with my wife and some key advisors around me. And everybody's reaction was, man, finally, you're coming to your senses. This is the next logical step. We always saw this happening, but apparently I was the last to figure it out. <laughs> it's so interesting because what you're describing, even from, you know, internally, you know, within the department is this level of alignment with the business and, and meeting their needs and solving their problems, which is not as common in, a, in IT departments as one might think, right? I, I remember having this conversation of like, hey, we need to you know, re replace these servers or refresh these servers. Why? Well, the new ones are three times better. Well, why is that something that's important to the business, right? You know, it's, well, three times better. That's just better, right? Objectively better. But how does that help the business? You're right? absolutely you right. And, and I take that to a, to heart very much because, you know, working in a manufacturing environment, if it didn't help us make more parts, make them faster, uh, or speed up the processes in the office to get instructions out to the shop floor or to get parts loaded onto a truck, there were, there was a big justification there. You know, if, if there were, if we were going to ask for the company to spend, and it was just for best practices from an IT standpoint, that's a harder sell. But if it's going to, like you said, three times faster, if it's going to speed up everybody's jobs by X, um, and everyone who transacts with any system is going to see a benefit, that's an easier sell. I can still hear you saying in my head, Tom, well, Nick, at the end of the day, we make parts. You got to remember that. Yeah. This guy taught me a lot about business and how to care about it when I would have that next really cool project that I wanted to implement. So, but he would always help me sell it to the big boys. Yeah. And that's a, another part of it, right? Sometimes, you know, best practice is best practice for a reason. And if you're not doing it that way, you're going to impact quality of service or, business continuity or, you know, user experience or, or something like that um, and really impact maybe, you know, revenue or slow down growth if we don't do this or, or some other thing that the actual business cares about. And unless you can talk about your project in a way that is actually going to impact that business, nobody else cares, right? Three times better. Why these servers are three times better than the old ones. I, I don't know why I care about that. Well, and in my world, the, the person that's always hardest to convince and also uh, sometimes the most important decision maker is that CFO role, the, the finance sure. person. They 
see see the business as numbers, as profitability, as revenue, as cost. And they're looking at it with a, a much more forensic eye than most times a president is or somebody in operations and definitely someone in sales. But that finance person is ultimately, uh, in many cases, the decision maker to say this is worth the investment or this is not. And whether it's hard dollars or just time and resources, a lot of times they're the ones who are putting their foot down or they're the ones you need to be focused on in terms of uh, – not necessarily selling it to them, selling the idea, but really getting them to understand the impact it has on the business of what you're presenting. Yeah. So did you have an experience or ever have that transition where, um, and I think maybe this is, you know, not something that's unique to me, but I always thought about it in terms of what I would now refer to as below the line dollars, you know, cost savings as opposed to above the line dollars, um, savings or uh, things that will actually impact, you know, revenue by bringing in more customers or, you know, doing things faster, faster time to market, you know, increased quality of service, things like that. Do you remember that transition or is that something that ever came up? Well, I would just say that it, if there was a transition, I can't pinpoint a, a time or place. It was very just organic where I started to kind of get a better understanding of, uh, and, and again, my, my point of reference is a little bit skewed because of just my intensive amount of time in manufacturing environments. Um, you know, I can, I can think a lot like somebody who makes something. Um, it's harder to think like someone who just services, even though that's the business I'm in. I'm in a service-oriented business. We really don't have much in terms of a product. We have a little bit, but uh, we really don't make it. We don't produce anything. Um, so I have to have to think along those lines in my business. But in so many ways, I still have to think like a manufacturer because those who are all of our clients are. Sure, sure. So you you made this decision. You've You've uh, started the company, and in that first, you know, year, I'm sure that you faced challenges—challenges challenges that you were able to overcome based on skills that you had developed in IT operations. Can can you identify maybe any of those that that um, that 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 helped in that process? You know, be it networking or or just the ability to learn something new. Uh, um, you know, any, any of those challenges and, and the skills that aligned to help overcome them? I would say the, the biggest realization for me um, was that, and then this happened before even the, the business came to be or the entrepreneurship season began. Um, it's just having an understanding and a, a piece of, you know, an understanding of, of Technology is not always the answer. And as much as I want that to be the answer, and as much as that is in my wheelhouse, you know, I can go to it quicker. I can implement things and, and unleash, you know, whether it be a new process or a new piece of software or a new customization. 
that I think would be an improvement. It's really just putting yourself in the seat of who's this impacting? And not only is it the role or the roles within the business that it's going to be impacting, but the people who are currently in those roles, what is their threshold? What is their uh, ability to manage change? How fast can the organization move with that change? Um, do we, are we doing too much too fast within one of our clients or, or one of our departments that we're working with? And is this a, uh, something that's large scale or small scale? And, and we really have to evaluate, like I said, technology might not always be the answer. We might come up with a cool solution that covers 95% of the, the instances that are just kicking these people's butt. You know, they've got a, a business problem and they're dealing with it and they have all these different factors involved. And we've developed a solution that fits 95% of it. And they still say, well, what about if this happens? And what about if that happens? And we figure out that those don't really happen often, but we have to have a process in place to, to be able to handle those. And in some cases it is just as simple as, well, this person then picks up the phone and they call this person and this person sends the email to that person, or, you know, there's, there's, uh, less technical, you know, almost analog ways of still handling some of those complex business problems. But the key piece is, and this is just advice in general, not just for, for someone, but for any business is that you want to have a business that's process oriented, not people oriented. And if I ask someone, Hey, what's your, what do you do about inventory here? And they say, Oh, we have Jim. That's not a good answer. Uh, what if Jim gets hit by a bus tomorrow? What then, then what are you going to do about inventory? Um, so having a process to handle all of those variables and contingencies that doesn't always have to involve a, a slick piece of software or the coolest technology to get it done um, was one of my biggest takeaways from just the last decade of, of living with manufacturers is that I don't always need the fanciest bells and whistles to have the biggest impact on the organization. Got it. So knowing when to recognize a problem is a technology problem or there's a technology solution and when it's appropriate to not actually have a technology solution, just have a, a procedural solution that incorporates maybe not writing code or, or, or not, doing something, just coming up with a process that solves the issue. And, and really at the core, it's, it's how creatively can you solve this problem? And it's not from a standpoint of you know, what's the, the coolest way to do it or, or even the most technical way, because in most cases, there's always a technical solution. It's not always, uh, or, or sometimes it is cost prohibitive. Sometimes it takes too much time and energy to implement uh, from a resource allocation standpoint. Or sometimes the people that you're working with just won't be able to handle that type of change to considering where they came from. You know, if you come from a world of people just writing on legal pads and then you want them to use this whole web interface that you've built for them, they've got to take baby steps along the way. They can't just go from you know, the 17th century to the 21st century. 
Right. So a transition plan too. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. So maybe um, my follow on question then is knowing what you know now, having actually gone through this process of starting a business, do you wish that, or have you identified skills that you wish that you had had before you started that would have made this transition to becoming an entrepreneur and running your own business uh, easier uh, in the first place? Yeah. So I would, I would take that question almost as uh, a little bit of knowing what I know now, what would I do differently? Is that fair to say? Sure. Um, so if I'm going to uh, approach it from that perspective, so what I would say is I wish I would have had a better plan for mentorship starting a business. I had worked in a business for a long time and I understood how a business works and the things that should be important to it, um, the things that uh, should be less important. And I thought that I could figure it out as I went and, and kind of continue to develop that vision and strategy for how I wanted to get or how I wanted to take the business from where it was to where I wanted it to be and putting a strategic plan in place to get there. And I think mentorship would have played a real strong role in that. Um, however, it was uh, not as much of a priority as it should have been because I would attribute it to, I was stepping out literally on my own. It's not like I was stepping out to work with a group of five people and we were all sharing the load. I was a technician and I was looking for technical work or people who had needs who um, they weren't being fulfilled by someone who could do that technical work. I could leverage that with my, for lack of better terms, ownership mentality and my ability to put myself in their shoes. And if I was making the decisions and if I was running the business or I was running this department, this is how I would want it to be. Or even if I was just using the tools, this is how I'd want them to work. Um, so taking that step without having really strong mentors and, and feeling like I was the one who had to do all the work all the time. If I wasn't doing it, nothing was getting done. Um, that was the biggest struggle I had is that I just felt like the weight of the world was on me and I had to be everything to everyone all the time. Mm. And I, I think if I would have had stronger mentors from the get go, uh, it would have put me in a more positive situation, um, psychologically to, to better handle that transition because there's a ton of freedom that came with starting my own business. Just the, uh, flexibility and schedule, the ability to have more time available for my family or to do what I felt like I needed to do, or in some cases just wanted to do at that time. Uh, but at the same time, there was a, a huge amount of stress that came in very quickly because I had started and I had two or three big clients and really nobody else. But once word started spreading that I was out on my own and 
and doing some some cool things for other people, the calls just started coming. The emails started coming. I wasn't actively marketing myself or anything like that, but all the work I had put in for the 10 years leading up to this of being involved in the user group, making those connections, being a part of networks and presenting at conferences, it was all paying off because people now realize that I'm quote unquote available to help and they just started beating down my door. Right. And I'm the type of person who likes a challenge and doesn't like saying no to people. I I do want to be everything to everyone all the time. That's a a (laughs) character flaw of mine that I'm very aware of. Um, But uh, yeah, I think if I would have had um, the right people in my ear at that time, uh, it could have been a much, much smoother transition uh, in terms of. Did you say yes to too many projects uh, too quickly? Was that an issue? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. In many cases, there just weren't enough hours in the day and I would still be taking things on and, you know, sacrificing my either personal health or time with my family on top of that, because I'd stay up until three o'clock in the morning and be working on projects for my clients and then wake up at six, six thirty to get the kids ready for school and get them out the door. Um, and doing that three, four nights a week, because I just wanted to embrace this challenge. And it, it was a little bit of that mindset of fear, I guess I would say, uh, driving a lot of those decisions. Like, I'm not sure if this work's always going to be there. Um, is it going to be here tomorrow? If, if I say no now, are they ever going to come back and ask again? Or am I ever going to be able to reach out to them and say, hey, do you got anything now? Um, so a lot of those uh, fears were driving some of those decisions to overload myself at the time. And sure. I quickly realized that uh, I, I can't do that. And I need some overflow valves. I need some help. I need some people working with me um, that I can share some of this load with. And I also needed to be honest with my clients that we needed to manage their expectations. And I had this uh, reputation at my previous employer of, you know, if we thought about it, that, that we could, we could do it and we could do it quick. And quick sometimes meant if we had an idea of a new thing we wanted to implement, if it wasn't done by the afternoon, then I was like, a failure in my eyes, you know, and it was just one of those things that I I wanted to be able to move and move quickly and be, be nimble and flexible. And I took that same mentality from my previous employer to everybody I started working with. I wanted to hit home runs all the time, every time, every at bat, I wasn't interested in hitting base hits. And in retrospect, it sounds like the base hits would have been a more sustainable way of uh, starting out. Yeah, and, and not only that, they might have looked like base hits to me, but in my clients' eyes, they could have been home runs. Right. Because it, it's just measured against, yeah, it's just being measured against what they're used to. Each baby step in his eyes is still progress for a team of folks who couldn't do it on their own. Right, right. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, what might look like uh, just a minimal progress means that like a task could be getting accomplished that, you know, couldn't get accomplished before. So that feels like 
you know, small ball or a base hit, but it might feel like a home run to, uh, to a customer and it might be a more sustainable way of you spending your time. Great. Here's the initial, you know, minimum viable, um, product. And then we're going to come in and iterate that and be a little bit better next time and a little bit better next time. And it's, uh, I think touches all also on something you said before, which is kind of that progression instead of going from 17th century to 21st century, you know, move a little bit at a time. So they don't feel like uh, things are changing too much. Well, and, and the, the other realization is that my clients aren't inside my head and they don't always know that I know that there that this could be better, mm-hmm. that, that I didn't go all the way, that it's not a home run to me. They don't know sure. that. And on the flip side, I don't know that they think, you know, what I consider a base hit is a home run. I may not right. find that out. I may never know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it goes back to just being more communicative, managing expectations. And that's just, that's general business strategy. It's, you know, you want your yes to mean yes and your no to mean no. And and in that same vein, there's a lot of gray area in between. And as long as you're communicating well about what that gray area looks like and, and how you want to move from, from yes to, or, you know, from no to yes, or from the gray area to one of those other two, um, that's where, customers, regardless of what business you're in, really value you is, is how well you communicate with them. Are you, are you keeping them in the loop? Are you uh, making them a part of the process or are you just seeing them as a, you know, potential ATM machine? Right. Right. It's so interesting because that's even applicable as an internal department, right. To be able to go to a business unit, um, some kind of business process owner and say, well, let's actually talk about scope. Let's talk about what the process looks like now, what you need the process to look like, what's driving that, you know, what could be intermediate win points um, that we could strive for um, and and see a return on invested time or, or, you know, just project investment. And, and, you know, as an outside business owner now, um, who is providing a service that scoping has become critically important. And it sounds like you had the freedom before to kind of have like, okay, you know, Tom's going to go do his thing and, and we're going to see a huge payoff. So we'll just let him spend the time. Uh, but when it's uh, on a contract basis, uh, maybe uh, that, that doesn't fly anymore. Right. Yeah. I would say that I I've had to refine that skill uh, over time to be uh, I don't want to say better up front, but just have a better idea of what I'm getting myself into. You know, when I worked uh, at my former employer and I was, you know, just one day I decided I'm going to go out to shipping and receiving and I'm going to live there and I'm going to see how they do it um, and and try and find out some better ways to do it. Uh, I had the freedom and flexibility to do so. I still had work that needed to get done that I was still getting done, but I saw a huge opportunity. And I was, I had the luxury of kind of figuring it out as I go. And over the last two years of being in business for myself, um, that luxury has all but evaporated. I have to be able to ask the right questions and, and like you said, scope the projects and uh, the opportunities very early on and get an idea of what I'm getting myself into so that I can understand, uh, 
you know, my own personal or my team's workload versus our capacity to perform. Sure. And ultimately, that's what that's what we're trying to balance. And so we have to get really, really good at understanding our customers' needs and developing solutions around them. And it, like we said, it may not be the best solution, but we have baby steps to get there. Here's minimum viable. Here's the next phase. And here's the next phase. And here's Nirvana. And maybe we don't ever get to Nirvana. Maybe we understand that, hey, phase two was good enough for us. And we're just going to leave it there. Yeah. Now we're at the point of diminishing returns. Maybe. Exactly. And, and you know, <laughs> a, uh, I, I can't begin to describe or, or can't even quantify how many times in the last year, especially where I've talked my clients out of a project that would have netted our business more revenue. It would have been great billable hours for us and a good project for us to turn, uh, you know, our skills on and really kind of fire our engines. But I knew it was the wrong decision for the client. I knew it was their, uh, undesired outcome or it would have been to your point, diminishing returns. They would have invested a ton of time and energy into making something that really wouldn't have given them all they anticipated getting from it. And so I ultimately talked them out of it and I talked them out of spending more money with us. And those, those types of conversations and, and those, the, the trust that can be built from those relationships, you can't put a price on. Absolutely. I, I, I've seen that so many times. I, I want to say, like, it was one of the more valuable conversations that I, I had as an IT manager is, you know, when you spend $80,000 on a company and they, they take you from, from zero to 85, right? And then you say, well, I want to get to 95. And they're like, well, that'll, that's going to take another $80,000. You know, do you, do you want to, you know, double your cost to get, you know, just mm-hmm. a little bit more, right? And and you look around and you go, oh, maybe where we're at's not so bad. And and that's a difficult conversation to have, but you gain the credibility when you come back and you say, listen, I have another $80,000 project to get something else from zero to 85. Uh, uh, one small example that I can share is I had a client who was just absolutely fixated on improving their accounts payable process. They saw it as, frustrating and archaic. We have to type all this stuff in. We have to save these invoices. We have to uh, process the payments and cut the checks and all that stuff. There's got to be some cool ways to do that. And he would send me link after link and web demo after web demo saying, hey, what about this? What about this? Nothing was any less than probably 15 grand plus another six months of, you know, time to ramp up to get it actually running and, and going. And I just, I had to convince him more, more than once that, you know, let's let the data tell us the story. And I actually put numbers in front of him. Like, here's the number of invoices you're processing, processing a day, a week, a month. Here's the amount of time it takes on average to process an invoice because we time studied it. And if you cut it down to, you know, even 30% of what it takes now. So like a 60 or 70% savings in time. Ultimately, we're talking about like 10 hours a month from one person's job. Is it really worth investing that much time and cost to save 10 hours a month in somebody's job who you're still going to have here 
40 hours a week and pay them a full salary. So you're really not right. going to gain any hard dollars. But like those types of conversations that I'm having with sometimes business owners, it's I'm really making myself vulnerable and saying here, I, I think that's a bad decision. And in many cases, there's a lot of business owners out there who don't have a lot of people like that around them. <laughs> and, right, uh, right. you know, the, the good ones do for sure. But, uh, you know, to, to, to put myself out on a limb there, knowing that he could just tell me, Hey, hit the bricks. You know, we don't need someone like you who's telling me, uh, what I should and shouldn't do. Um, but I, I kind of take that risk. I, I become vulnerable in hopes that it builds a little bit of trust. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny. No, I won't take your money, sir. We need to look <laughs> at this further. Who who expects that? No one. But it's a great lesson for anybody in, in any role to not only understand the customer, where they're coming from and their problem, but know yourself, your capabilities and your capacity to take on the work and also find the compromise somewhere in between so that you don't kill yourself, but you make sure and help the customer along on their journey. For sure. Yeah, exactly. Makes sense to me. Hey, Tom, I know we don't want to eat up too much of your time and it's probably getting late for you, but I I do wanted to ask, you know, you touched on something and that was the scaling issue. So can you tell us maybe a little bit about, how you scaled out the business at first? Were you offloading maybe administrative functions to somebody else? Or did you actually take on, you know, additional people to help you do, you know, the core business, uh, you know, actually billing more hours to your customers? Well, it was a little bit of both. And some of it was just trial and error. And like I said, a lot of this is just attributed to, I think if I would have had more focus in the beginning and, and better mentors, um, I wouldn't have gone through some of these trial and error periods. Um, and also, you know, I, I started the business with a, a vision in mind of what I wanted it to become. And I knew I wanted it to be something more than just me as an independent consultant. But as the uh, owner and leader of the business, if I'm not driving it towards that vision in some way every day, then I'm going to fall into a little bit of the routine that I, I wound up falling into for the last year or so, or, or just before that, uh, in that I was a little bit of an independent consultant. I had technical abilities. I had people who wanted to, to hire those out. I became a contractor and my name became synonymous with lead technology solutions. And that's never what I had planned for the business, but because I felt the weight of the world in terms of, I had to be the one accomplishing all this stuff. Um, and I had to be the one filling the bucket on the front end to make sure that there was more work coming in. I, I just, I wound up staying small for a lot longer than I wanted to. Um, I had a, a plan and a vision for how we were going to grow, but I realized over time that I wasn't driving it in the direction to get there. And if I wasn't driving it in the direction to get there, nobody else was. So I had had a lot of experience as an innovator within somebody else's business. I caught their vision and I was trying to drive the business towards their end game and 
it was a big shock to my system when I had to be the one to figure out what my end game was and what am I going to do to drive my business towards that end game. And so to answer your question about offload, it was a little twofold. I, I tried at first to say, you know what, I'm just so overwhelmed. I got all these billable hours and I have all these administrative tasks to perform. Can I offload some of that, you know, cataloging all my expense reports for, for travel to clients and doing the billing uh, every week or month, whatever cycle it needed to be done on for each individual customer. I tried to offload that first and it was a big realization for me that I'm not super comfortable with that. And I needed to relinquish a lot of control because even though uh, they were doing it in a way that still worked, I was uncomfortable with it because they weren't doing it my way. And I struggle with that. Um, Not that I struggle with that as a leader, but because I just designed the process and I developed uh, the way to do it and I communicated the way to do it. They were varying and meandering around that process and it was still getting done. But because they weren't doing it my way, I wanted control. (laughs) And, and again, I, I, I'm very aware that this is a character flaw and I'm working on it considerably. Um, so then when it came to offload some of the core business functions, and I touched on it earlier in this, and, it, and I can't stress it enough, at least in my line of work, that trust is so important that I had to find someone who was close to another version of me. I had to find someone who could... Uh, you know, be personable in front of clients, or at least I like to think I'm personable and someone who could perform the technical work, someone who could think creatively and develop some of these kind of out of the box solutions to complex business problems. Uh, Someone who wasn't reliant on kind of that idea that technology is always the answer that they wanted to, to think like someone in that business who could, you know, kind of have that ownership mentality. And so by finding people who, could do some of that work. Um, what, you know, I, I couldn't find a carbon copy of myself, but I could find someone who was had our, our, our Venn diagram would have a considerable overlap in the middle um, where on the outside I would compliment them and they would compliment me. And I started to find more and more people who not only had that capability, but were willing to take on some additional work. And most of them had other full-time jobs. Most of them uh, were just doing this as kind of a moonlighting deal, um, which I, I had no problem with whatsoever because I still looked at it with that, uh, a little bit of that fear-based mentality of like, well, I'm not sure if all the work's going to be there tomorrow. So I don't know if I can have you here full time, but I'm glad that you're helping me now. Um, so it was, it was a little bit of discomfort on my part, because like I said, I am a little bit of that control freak who likes things done their way. Uh, you can ask my wife about, you know, loading the dishwasher and <laughs> where do the bowls go? Where do the spoons go? She knows that I have a way that is, uh, it, it's not the only way, but sometimes I think of it that way. Uh, and I, I applied a lot of that same things to what I was doing in the business. And 
almost to a fault to where it was keeping me, it was hindering me from growing. Sure. So you gave us a book recommendation, the E-Myth, uh, getting into um, entrepreneurship. And uh, I have a, a book recommendation for you. Uh, and it's called uh, Core Business, C-O-R-P-S Business. And it's a uh, business lessons learned from the Marine Corps. And they have this, uh, and this might be apocryphal, but it's a, a test at the uh, the basic school where uh, they send their second lieutenants to to learn leadership lessons. And the test is you're given a squad of Marines and uh, and all the rigging to to put up a, a flagpole and including a, a sergeant to uh, to help. And uh, the 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 test is okay. So um, what is the the proper process to get this flagpole up? Right. And, and the correct answer is something along the lines of, hey, Sergeant, get that, that get that flagpole up and then walk away for 30 minutes. Right. <laughs> so um, the idea being that, you know, really, in order to get something done, you need to set the, the success outcomes, um, set the environment for the, the proper, uh, you know, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and then let the people do it. And, and not micromanage. It, it, I guess it ended up being a micromanagement thing, but it's it's not something that I ever thought of until, you know, I read that and they're like, hey, you know, this is uh, uh, this is this is not a uh, a an issue that's unique to any any person who's high achieving, right? Um, so uh, it's it's a really good book and it has a bunch of other stuff other than that. Yeah. And your vast amounts of free time, I'm sure you don't know. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, and and I do kind of paint that picture, and I, I know I've I've gotten pretty darn vulnerable during this conversation, <laughs> but uh, you know about the inner workings of Tom Delicati. But like I said, don't I, cry I'm on us. Don't, con- don't do it. I'm a constant work in process, and I, I want to get better, um, not just as a, a a leader or a business owner, but as a person. And and my continuous development is it's not something that's going to change anytime soon. I'm still going to be pursuing all of that. But I think Nick can attest. I'm hoping he can, and I don't want to put words in his mouth. But I think on one, of the, <laughs> one of the one of the the more impactful things that you've shared with me, Nick, is that I did not have a a micro management style. It was interesting, you know, when I worked in someone else's business, I feel like I had this freedom of. You know, uh, if we had something that needed to be accomplished, I knew what needed to be accomplished to your point about success outcomes, but I bet you, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't quantify the number of times that, you know, Nick would, would come to me with a question or or something, uh, a a particular hurdle he was facing. And my answer was, what was it, Nick? I'm sure you'll figure it out. I'm sure you'll figure it out. <laughs> or, or good luck with that. Or we'd talk it out and then like answer my own question <laughs> during that time and just say, okay, thanks man. Appreciate it. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> but yeah, I like to think, I like to think that I, I sprinkled in there more often than not. I trust you or you'll figure it out. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. Because, you know, I could just say, hey, you know, we really need to do this. He'd be like, all right, go do it. Okay, good talk. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> he, he, didn't, 
he didn't care about the minute details. You know, he just, he knew that I was going to do a good job and trusted me to make it happen. Well, and on top of that, Nick, you coming from your background of being an educator, um, you know, you know, there's so much to be gained from just the, the learning process. And once we figure out how each of us uh, thrives in the way they learn, then as managers, leaders, business owners, or even just colleagues, we want to set up our people to have the best possible outcome from the way they best learn. Amen to that. Yeah, I think that that hits a a chord with both of us. Definitely. Nick, anything else that you want to touch on before we let Tom go? No, I think that's a pretty good mic drop moment to end on. Uh, Tom, do you want to share any of your contact info in case somebody wants to chat with you and follow up on this session? Sure, that's totally fine. Again, the business name is Lead Technology Solutions, L-E-A-D, leadtechsolutions.com. It's not the uh, uh, fanciest website you'll ever get to, but if you want to find a way to contact me, I'm sure that's a, a, a method to do so. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. Just search Tom Delicati, D-E-L-I-C-A-T-I. Great. And lead at lead, do you focus uh, specifically on Epicor or um, are, have you generalized uh, past uh, to other ERP solutions as well? It's primarily focused in Epicor when it comes to ERP, but our our offerings are a little more wide than that. Um infrastructure, uh, managed services. We do a little bit of everything. Um, but when it comes to really kind of the, uh, the core business in terms of what I'm passionate about, it's definitely related to ERP software, especially Epicor users. Awesome. Very exciting. Great. Um, so Nick, I think that's what we have, uh, and, uh, everything that we had planned, uh, anything else pop in your mind before we say goodbye to Tom? No. Uh, of course, I want to plug the John White School of Mentoring here. Remember to tweet or DM at Nerd Journey for me to pimp out some of John's time. And who knows, maybe I could even get you some of Tom's time for the right amount of money. Just a reminder, again, that we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. If we're being helpful, and we're always looking for interesting questions to ponder, we're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Yeah. Um, before we say farewell, uh, Tom, are you on Twitter? Uh, as a consumer, yeah, not really a contributor. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, we'll post a link to Tom's uh, LinkedIn and to uh, Lead Technology Solutions website as well. Uh, so with that, farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios.